Danny's Journal, May 23rd, 2021. The vermin that sits next to me, her name is Laura, smells like sewage. She asks, come in close, give me a smooch. And I look at her and say, no, you smell like poop. <laughs> Welcome to Film is Lit. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> the only way our listeners know who I am is how we describe ourselves on this podcast, and you just told me I smell like shit. Uh-huh. Just... I was doing a bit, but also, <laughs> this is kind of a wake-up call. <laughs> take a shower. <laughs> Welcome to Film is Lit, the podcast where we take a piece of literature and compare and contrast it to its TV or film adaptation. My name is Danny. I am the self-appointed film expert. I am the self-appointed literature expert. What's your name? Oh, yeah. I'm Laura. Yeah. (laughs) Excuse me. I'm picking Jack in the Box out of my teeth, so I'm not thinking. Don't tell the listeners what we ate tonight. I just gained like five pounds. We're normally better than fast food. We had, we made it. Are we? Are we? Now I think about it, no. (laughs) But, but it's funny. Last night we cooked duck and that was i I take no responsibility for that he went master class on that duck's ass you know before we get to the book and movie in question i just gotta say this one thing that has nothing to do with anything duck is such an underrated protein am i am i right yeah yeah it's delicious you don't seem as passionate it's just expensive well here's the thing Yes, it's expensive. It's only for special occasions. But certain types of fish are super expensive. Certain cuts of meat are expensive and only for special occasions. But you don't you don't hear people be like, I want duck tonight. Well, I wonder too, like how hard it is to cook because I've had elk before and like well, you, elk meat is out there. It's just really hard to cook. So it's like maybe it's just like it was not know. that hard to cook. But whatever. I'm I'm team duck. <laughs> uh, I love duck. Expensive, but only for special occasions. Okay, welcome to part one of three of our coverage on Watchmen, the graphic novel. So today we're covering the graphic novel and the movie, mm-hmm. and then the next two episodes. It's going to be a two-parter on the HBO television series, which is a sequel to the graphic novel, not right. a straight adaptation. So that should be fun. Yeah, I, I haven't watched it yet, so I'm super interested to see how that's going to turn out. It, it's much different from the movie in terms of style and uh, the violence on display. Okay. Because, uh, as we'll get to, this is a Zack Snyder movie, and the Zack S- Snyder summed up in a couple phrases is... Oh, look at that. Oh, so cool. Oh, slow motion. Uh, yeah. Am I yeah, right? This is the first, I think this is the first Zack Snyder movie I've ever seen, right? Have you seen 300? No. Okay. So because, it's probably. Well, because he kind of has a style too, right? As from what, Very what I, distinct. Here's, here is Zack Snyder's style. It can only be described as a molestation of close-ups and slow motion while also removing any and all subtlety from his projects. Yeah. His, his films have the subtlety of um, an animal stampede, which is to say none. It's, <laughs> it's exactly that. It's full force, yeah. full brunt, running straight at you, 
loud noises. Um, I, I should say I don't hate all his movies. 300 came out when I was in seventh grade, and that movie was tailor-made for seventh grade boys. I mean, action, violence, naked ladies. I mean, that... Oh my God. I've never seen it. I that no movie is seventh grader's dream. <laughs> um, and 300, I haven't seen it in a while, but I wonder if it holds up. It, it is a pretty cool movie. And I liked his cut of the Justice League, even though that's a, a TV show, not a movie. It was released as a movie, but it is a TV show. Uh, Should have been. Yeah, well, it's complete with chapters that you can watch. As it, so it's like, I don't know why. It, it was due to contract mm-hmm. uh they made a movie, and if they're going to release it as a TV show, they're going to have to change their contracts. So they just released it as a full yeah. movie. I like the Snyder Cut a lot, and I like 300 a lot. Also, Snyder's uh, Dawn of the Dead remake, which is his first movie, is pretty great. But his most recent movie you didn't like. Either. No, Army of the Dead sucks. It's <laughs> awful. It's... 150 minutes and it's super slow which is weird it's a zombie heist movie but there's really not a lot of action um the action that's in it is fun but the movie itself is boring and cliched and aggressively stupid and (laughs) juvenile um yeah it's (laughs) it's not great even for like i ironically like you can't even just like Mm. sit down with the bros and have a beer and watch it i mean it's two and a half hours i mean jesus i mean well speaking of long movies hello watchmen so yeah (laughs) let's get to our journeys with the graphic novel and the movie this is our first graphic novel on the pod what are we 40 episodes in at this point and we haven't covered a graphic novel yet this is kind of the seminal most famous graphic novel out there, I would say. Yeah. People consider it the best graphic novel ever released, if not, you know, in the top three. Certainly, it's legacy and, and uh, the inspirations that have mm-hmm. derived from from this have been numerous. This is kind of the, the granddaddy of all graphic novels, so... I couldn't wait to uh, tackle it, but yeah, yeah, go ahead with your journey. Well, I don't have a long journey with this piece, so I'm going to wrap a little bit of the back story into it just to hear myself talk. <laughs> no. So it came out in 1986. It was a series of 12, I don't want to say comics, but they were comics, right? Like when they first came out. That would have been considered a comic? Like, I guess... They're in issues? I, hardcore graphic novel fans, I think, have an issue with it. Me? Yeah, okay. because... I mean, the thing is, it is it is comics, right? In, in that format. But graphic novels differ themselves from comic books by being more than that. Like, the, sure. like Watchmen has certain passages, you know, of text, or it has, you know, different things going on sure. than your, your traditional... So, so it was published in 12 issues. Gotcha. <laughs> I will accept that. Um, it was written by Alan Moore, and it was illustrated by Dave Gibbons. I have no experience with graphic novels. So when Danny suggested we do Watchmen, I was like, I guess I can give this a try. But the only, I guess the only experience I have with graphic novels are like YA literature, like Hugo Cabret and Persopolis. So those are, and Captain Underpants, I guess, actually just popped into my head. Is that a graphic novel? I don't believe so. No, no, it's not. I'm going to count it as. 
I okay, you you, you do you, but it's just it's it not. Just into my head. It totally is. Anyway, um, so this is my first experience with like an adult graphic novel piece, and I'm gonna be honest, I had a really hard time reading it. I had to ask Danny so many follow up questions. And I don't know if that was just my brain just like it could not like retain Process, yeah. the information from like window to window. I just for some reason it was like I, I just could not keep the story in my head. There was just like so much going on. And Interesting. like the so my advice to anybody who's never read a graphic novel, which which should be read like a novel, like there's a lot of text in here. Yeah. I would say go into it like you would go into a Jane Austen novel. Like go in knowing the overarching story because I think I really would have benefited from knowing the the major beats mm-hmm. of the story. Yeah. Because there was some stuff that stuck out to me that then I asked Danny about and he kind of had to explain either that's not important or this is how it fits into the story or this was a misdirect because one character wanted to deceive other characters. I just had a really hard time understanding the overarching story. Yeah, it's funny that you brought up Jane Austen because Watchmen is to you what Jane Austen is to me. Yeah. I haven't read a lot of graphic novels, but for someone who hasn't read any, the first one I would suggest is Watchmen, because to me it feels very accessible. However, I'm a fan of the genre, and I'm also a fan of, I guess, the satirization of the genre, which is what this graphic novel is. Yeah. And I can go into something like Jane Austen, and if I'm not fully 100% on board, you can just get lost in the text. Well, and I like how you pointed out that this is a satirical piece on graphic novels, because I kind of got that with a lot of the anti-heroes. And so, again, with no context going in, I definitely got that out of it. But if I were to hand you Henry Fielding's Variety Fair and you read it, you probably wouldn't really understand that that was a satirization of the novel genre during his time period. Sure. Like, it just, yeah, like, I I think it's like a perfect analogy and I just wish that I had gone in with... I, I should have done more research before I went into it. I think that really would I mean, have changed my perception. I mean, maybe, but you're also... It's like, you know, with the Jane Austen thing, it's just that's your wavelength and... I, well, yeah, but but it, it would it would have helped me understand it. Sure. A lot better. Cause just, it, just the story. Yeah. Which I think arguably is like the most important thing is that you come out with, with the, the main story beats and, mm-hmm. and what it was trying to get across. And I think I just was so distracted by everything going on because I'm not used to having pictures mm-hmm. yeah. that I just kind of got lost. But yep. um, however, I will say that something I really enjoyed about this novel and something that made me realize that it was sort of a great example of it or or maybe a standout example of a graphic novel was how incredible the drawings literally make it feel like you're watching a directed movie like a book like there were some windows where I was like holy shit like 
that was like a camera direction where it would like follow a character down an alleyway and then the camera or the perspective would back up to like the front of the alleyway and then you would see like a signpost from a different direction. Yeah. Like that was really well done. So I see how this is like a great example mm-hmm. of a graphic novel. It just like, just for me, I just got distracted by a lot of other stuff. Yeah, Dave Gibbons deserves as much credit for the master uh, that is this work as uh, Alan Moore does. Yeah, yeah, the drawings are... A- bit of storytelling yeah for sure and yeah. I, I recognize that i appreciate it it's just not the way i like to read my stories sure so and <laughs> and then i guess the movie was your first time yeah never never watched it we had to watch it in two settings um after 40 minutes we paused it to like go on a restroom break and i was like oh my god there's an hour left and davy was like there there's are two, two hours, hours left. left and i was like i'm falling asleep i need to go to that's Zack Snyder for you. He oh loves his bloated movies. Um, it was long. So yeah, it was the first time I watched it. Right off the bat, there was stuff I liked. There was stuff I didn't like. But yeah. we'll get into that. So what's your journey with the book and the movie? Well, I had mentioned 300. So again, 7th grade, 2007, that came out. I'm like, I love Zack Snyder. He is my god now. <laughs> and I, anything he makes, I'll watch. And then the trailer for Watchmen came out two years later, and I saw it, I'm like, hmm, that doesn't seem like a normal superhero movie. It seems Uh highly stylized, but it doesn't seem like there's a lot of action. I'm intrigued. (laughs) I haven't read the graphic novel, but I'm intrigued. I didn't see it in theaters because it was rated R. and For good reason. (laughs) Oh, yeah, it's explicit. The graphic novel is is pretty explicit, too. At Dr. Manhattan walking around pantsless all day. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> but yeah, Dave Gibbons loves illustrating that little blue dong. <laughs> and his butt too is really shapely. I don't have any problem with. Me oh yeah, oh yeah. Here, that's the thing. I this novel really can't be accused of being sexist because there's much more male nudity than there is female and, nudity. And, and I think and it's arguably tasteful. Yeah. I mean, I don't necessarily understand why Dr. Manhattan is naked. Well, he has no. I would say he has no reason to cover up. Yeah, like, he's he just a human. Yeah, he's not even. Yeah, he has nothing in common with human. Yeah. Like that is his form, sure. I guess. Anyways, I saw the movie when it came out on DVD and didn't like it at all. It was too long to hold my attention. I had watched 300 so many times that I was kind of over Zack Snyder's slow-mo, mm. hyper-stylized slow-mo, which is, if you sped up all the slow-mo in this movie, you could cut out about half an hour easily. Yeah, if I you mean, just, yeah, it's so, so much that. slow-mo. It's incredible. So didn't like it then, but I was intrigued to read the novel because I liked the story. And I and I recognized that there's a lot of story in there, and I knew that Zack Snyder had used the graphic novel as storyboards. Like, he, he did that with 300, too, which oh, was a graphic novel. I didn't know that. But, yeah, he made the movie as kind of an experiment to literally bring the graphic novel to the screen. If you're going to do that with anything, I mean, I understand why this would be what you turn to right because it's very cinematic right yeah but here's the thing it's cinematic but not in the way that normal superhero movies are Mm -hmm. the graphic novel as we've said is a satirization of superheroes it deconstructs the genre 
So basically, the graphic novel is saying superheroes are silly and they won't save the world. And if there is a superhuman like Superman, he's going to have nothing in common with humans because he's right. superhuman. Humans to a Superman are like ants. Yeah, there's there, no stake there's in nothing. the well-being. So right. basically, Alan Moore is saying that superheroes are silly. Yeah. And what the movie does, even though it literally translates the comic squares onto the frame, mm -hmm. it makes it tries to make the action cool and like slow-mo and everyone's sexier and yeah. younger than they are in the graphic novel. And it's like, you're missing the point completely. Mm. It, this is not an action movie. Mm. So yeah, I read the graphic novel. I got my hands on it in college uh, when I was at BU. Loved it. I read it very quickly and I didn't revisit the graphic novel until 2019 when the show came out, which we're going to discuss. Spoiler alert, love the show. One of I haven't the, seen it yet? Yeah, one of the best limited series out there. I, I just, I'm obsessed with it. it. It's the perfect sequel in my book. Mm, but for yeah, it, yeah. It, it, it's great. But watching the movie the second time, I think it was a good reappraisal, I guess, of the graphic novel, but also the movie itself. I liked it a little better than I did back in ninth grade, but I still can't deny it's way too long by... Oh, and here's the biggest thing I want to say. The graphic novel should have been adapted into a television show. Mm -hmm. It's so dense. It's so you're, dense. You're dealing with three generations of superheroes. You're dealing yeah. with the originals, who are the Minutemen. You're dealing with the second wave, which were the crime busters, they're called, right. in the graphic novel. In the movie, they just call them the Watchmen. And then you're dealing with the third wave, which is... Night Owl and Rorschach teaming up with Silk Spectre 2 to like uncover this conspiracy. Mm -hmm. So you're dealing with three different time periods. Yeah. And it's a lot of jumping back and forth and there's just so much plot. Yeah. That read reading the graphic novel there's no way you can make it into a movie. Right. And I, that's why I don't think the movie succeeds is because even at 164 minutes it still cuts so much out. Yeah. There's so much forced exposition because yeah. they have so much ground to cover. Yeah. And people say these lines that are unnatural because they have to fit in all this information yeah. that you can, with a TV show, you can spend time developing characters and storylines. In a movie, you can't do that. Well, and I think it's interesting to note too that in 2009, it probably wasn't, well, correct me if I'm wrong, but it wasn't as common to release limited series yeah. television shows. And in what, when did the show come out? 2019? Yeah, right. So that has been a very successful structure now. Right, yeah. So I think that, yeah, like just that alone made it more successful. Yes. They were able to chop it up <laughs> and be more true to the source material. Yeah. But... I was also just going to add that I didn't love the dialogue in the novel as well. I thought there was a lot of really stilted phrases. I, yeah. I know a lot of that came from Rorschach, but there was a lot of stuff where I was like, are they trying to affect, are the masked crusaders, what do they call themselves, masked? Well, in the novel, it's, they try to become the crime busters, and I don't, okay. I Correct me if I'm wrong, listeners, but I don't think they ever say Watchmen in the novel. Other than when 
the graffiti who watches. Right. Watch yes. Movie. Yeah. But anyway, my point was that with the stilted words from like Hollis and the new Night Owl, I was like, are they? I know they're just humans. So are they talking like that to become, to try to like represent themselves as superheroes? Because that's sort of how, you know, superheroes talk or by like romanticizing things and saying like unnecessary little phrases here and there. Or is this like poor writing <laughs> on Helen Moore's Interesting. Side? I, I, I don't know. There was just a lot of stuff where I was just like, nobody actually talks that way. The dialogue was just super stilted. And I know that that's a style specifically to Rorschach because he's sort of that, like, he's supposed to be, like, you know, like a psychoanalyzing... Nutcase. Nutcase. He's a big contradiction. Yeah. But anyway, I don't know. That that just, to me, took me out of the story a lot. I I think there are some cliche lines um, here and there and some unnatural dialogue, but it's nothing compared to the film, which the film, as I've said, has so much ground to cover Mm -hmm. in so little time that the exposition, this is kind of the case for all Snyder movies. Whether Snyder writes his movies or not, the dialogue is just very cringy. So here's an example of what I'm talking about. So in the graphic novel, they set up the doomsday clock, which is a visual representation of how close humanity is to nuclear war. In the movie, how they set it up is in that interview with uh, Dr. Manhattan when he's being framed for giving everyone cancer, there's a reporter who goes, "Uh, yes, hi, Uh, Dr. Manhattan, as you know, the doomsday clock, which is a visual representation of nuclear war and how close we are to it. And then she goes on with her question. And the thing I learned like day one of screenwriting class is you never have a character say, as you know, and then explain yeah. what the character knows because they know it. Right. Like, why would you say that to someone? Clearly for the audience's uh, benefit. Exactly. Yeah. And that's rampant throughout the whole movie of yeah. just people saying, oh, remember back in the day when we did this? Or like, remember, or it's like our second date, we went to like Arrowhead and we had a, a big hike, but it'd be like me, us walking down the street and being like, hey, remember our second date in Lake Arrowhead when we went on that long hike? Yeah. No, we would yeah. just say, remember my second date and then yeah. cut to flashback of our, you know, <laughs> yeah. but they don't have any time for that in the movie. Yeah. So we're going to have difficulty discussing all the differences between the novel and the movie because there are few yeah. because it's such a direct interpretation. But the biggest difference is Adrian's plan mm-hmm. and how he goes about uniting the world, if you want to say. Which I had to ask Danny to explain to me because I was way too dense to understand what well, was going on. <laughs> but you know, it's really funny. I think this is a really good example of how much I just really missed the boat on this novel. This, I... So. So I'm done. I finally finished reading the novel and I'm talking with Danny and he goes like, oh, so like, how did you like the ending? And I was like, well, I just have a couple questions about, you know, the end when the atomic bomb goes off. And he was like, well... That what what do you mean? That doesn't I'm like happen? I'm like that happens in the movie kind of, but you haven't seen the movie yet. Yeah, I was like, well, like in the very last chapter or second to last chapter when Adrian 
completes his plan and he's like he has a giant squid yeah (laughs) i'm like i was like like, what do you think of the giant squid and i was like what are you talking about like i had no idea well uh, what that meant i I was like i just lost question for you on the page where they show a giant squid what did you think uh that was okay so all i saw was like a lot of color Oh, and I see. Like something, there's there's kind of like a, a circle in the middle or something, right? Where there's like a lot of yeah, like let's let's find. The yeah, flipping it. So yeah, you there's like okay. The... So arguably, the only thing that you see there are two pages where it shows the destruction of New York, and on the first page, all that you see that would suggest that there's a squid is this like tentacle thing going through, but. Arguably, it looks like just a piece of metal or something that's like going through the page. So then you flip the page and now I understand where there's like a the the beak of the squid and there's like an eye and some tentacles. But like that's not the middle of the page. It's it's just like yeah. the, it's, and they it's se- really and, and all they have to <laughs> yeah, all they have to set that up is a couple chapters before on that secret island, you know how Ozymandias took all these artists and scientists to a secret island under yeah. the guise that he was making a movie yeah. to, to create this squid. All you see is a stencil of that squid. And so so that's why I guess I can't judge because, like I said, I had seen the movie first and I had heard about the difference in the ending. So the movie doesn't have the squid. But so by the first time I was reading it, I was looking out for it. And the beauty of the novel is that all these details are hidden in plain sight. Yeah. And that that was just something that I just, I wasn't trained to yes. see. And so it completely flew over and, and that's actually my favorite part of the graphic novel is slowly realizing Adrian's plan. Yeah. And so the novel has this comic within a comic inside it called the Black Friday that this one uh, boy is reading. And the author of that comic book, like within this universe, he's part of the people who go on the island, the secret island with Adrian Veidt, who are creating the squid. Really? Unknowingly. So do you remember that panel where they're on the boat and it explodes? Yeah. So those were all the artists and scientists that Adrian oh, brought gosh, to the island. I, I didn't, I didn't understand. <laughs> yeah. So. <laughs> so sorry. Yeah. No, that's fine. Uh, so basically, Adrian Veidt, he's the evil mastermind behind it all. Mm-hmm. Well, evil. So here's the thing. This is a great debate. What we're about to talk about with the ethics of his master plan. So, mm-hmm. in the story, he gathers all these scientists and artists to create this squid and uh, and then he kills everyone to you know close all the loops and uh tie all loose ends right and the comedian finds out about adrian's plan so the both the movie and the novel open with the comedian getting murdered being thrown out of a window and the blood getting on his uh pin of the smiley face and then he needs to get Dr. Manhattan out of the way because Dr. Manhattan can vaporize him in an instant. So what he does is he frames him for giving all these people cancer. And Dr. Manhattan was already losing touch with Earth mm-hmm. and had alluded to wanting to leave it. And this was the final push that 
got him to leave oh, Earth, boy. and he just right. goes <laughs> goes to Mars Chills and just Mars, and just yeah. plays with the sand, making it into glass, mm-hmm. and it's so cool. But and then yeah, and to ward off suspicion of himself, he hires an assassin to try to kill him. But obviously, he's the smartest man in the world, and. In the book, they talk about him doing this certain type of fitness, which can make you like any man super strong and super mm-hmm. agile. So he uses that to ward off being killed right. and thwarts the assassin. So all suspicion is off bite because to mm-hmm. the public, someone tried to kill him. Right. And then Rorschach is the superhero, or not our, the protagonist really, but the narrator for some of it. You're reading his journal for a while. Mm-hmm. And he suspects that there's a plot to kill masked superheroes, but really it's just Adrian Veidt uh, doing his thing. So that's where the graphic novel and the movie stay the same. But where they differ is the means. So in the book, Ozymandias teleports a squid to Manhattan, and he clones the brain of a dying psychic medium. And that's that's what get once the alien arrives in Manhattan, it instantly dies. But as it dies, it sends out a shock wave that melts the brains of everyone in in Manhattan, and then everyone like surrounding in the surrounding area goes crazy. Oh, I didn't get that either. Yeah, but how did I miss all this? I feel like such a dummy. Well, I like I promise I read. Well, it. Well, here's the I thing. Promise I read it. So watching Emma, I still don't know what Mr. Knightley does, even though they like say I st- like see what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Like, don't feel dumb. It's just, yeah, it's just your if your attention's not fully there. Like mine wasn't with Emma. You, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. It, so I, yeah, yeah. So oh, and d- we should mention that Ozymandias is the same as Adrian Veidt. Yes. Yeah. Correct. Thank you. I just because I I like didn't quite get there gotcha so I help. yeah oh and should be obvious by now but full spoilers for everything right. i mean it's too late but so the world is on the brink of nuclear annihilation oh and the book takes place in an alternate version of 1985 where america won vietnam with dr manhattan's help and nixon is in his fourth term going to his fourth term so the world avoids nuclear annihilation because they see this common threat this alien that came out of nowhere, and they realized, oh, we should all come together. We should drop this whole, you know, useless fight, this Cold War. Because, again, it's a Cold War, meaning that no one really wants to escalate things if they don't have to. That's why the Cold Wars last so long. Because, But they're on the brink of annihilation, but they realize there's a common enemy that everyone shares now on Earth. Let's all unite together to try to prevent this from happening again and let's all just like drop our problems and like, help out, out of respect for all the people yes. who died yeah because right. it could yeah because in the graphic novel three million people die right it gives like them a way out almost to yeah say, like oh like we're still mad at each other but there are bigger things to overcome yes sort of like that right and in the movie based off of the feeling that a giant squid would seem too goofy in the movie. They change it. And they change it to, throughout the film, Ozymandias is working with Dr. Manhattan to create a renewable energy source so they wouldn't have to rely on fossil fuels anymore. Smart. But what he's really doing is just replicating Dr. Manhattan's power so he can frame Dr. Manhattan for setting off nuclear bombs all over the world. Mm-hmm. 
3 million people die in New York, but he also detonates bombs in London and Hong Kong and LA, LA Paris. Paris. Yeah, so the whole world thinks that Dr. Manhattan is the enemy. And basically, it's it's we get to the same conclusion that right. the graphic novel does. It's just a different way, a different means. Right. But for years, I've thought, why didn't they do the giant squid? That's so awesome and so weird and so cool. And mm -hmm. it makes sense because Dr. Manhattan, even though he was aloof and away from the world, he really didn't have that much of a reason to it attack mm -hmm. like why would he care but i guess you know as kind of a strike being like you know screw you for accusing me of giving people cancer but really the alien makes more sense and i was vindicated because i'll say this right now the show is a sequel to the graphic novel not to the movie mm -hmm. and so the squid plays a part in the show i can't wait for you to see how how sure. it factors in yeah. but my point is the show vindicated my feeling that there was no reason to switch it from a squid to Dr. Manhattan. Mm -hmm. Like p audience w audiences would accept this. They mm -hmm. accepted it for the show. Yeah. So yeah, that's my whole long rant. But now we're, we get into the debate of what Dr. Manhattan did. Obviously, yeah. he, so he killed 3 million people, but in the universe, he killed three million people to save 7.3 billion, right, basically. Yeah. yeah, this is what I'm excited to yeah. talk about because these are the most interesting villains. Yeah, and you could, t we, we can talk about this. This is a psychology debate, like 101, mm -hmm. of a, and basically how... Yeah, oh yeah, it's a trolley scenario. Yes, basically. Yeah. yeah, so uh, Ozymandias, his plan is uh, utilitarian. Yeah. Uh, Meaning that he's saying that the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Right. <laughs> like to quote Spock. Um, yeah. To bring up Emma Watson. Oh, shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I hate to shit on her yet again. But she's in a terrible movie called The Circle. Yeah. Oh, oh, I saw that when it was in theaters and I hated it. It's it was terrible. Ter and we're going to cover it for the podcast because I've heard the book is good. Oh, cool. Yeah, but I haven't read the book. The I movie was terrible. But my favorite <laughs> line from that movie is at the beginning, she's being interviewed for a job at this like Apple adjacent company. And the interviewer goes like, what's more important, the needs of the many or the needs of the few? And then Emma Watson says, trick question, they're both equal, which I think is, in my opinion, is the correct statement. So, which is why a debate like this of whether Ozymandias was right is so tough because it's like, how can you, you both can and can't justify what he did. He kill, straight up killed Marked. three million people, but everyone was most likely going to die if this mm. didn't happen. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those philosophical debates where it almost doesn't matter because you'll like never be in that situation well so, sure yeah but i let me just think about it for a second yeah it's tough because when you go like something like what i'm talking about where the needs of an individual equal the needs of many i'm not saying like it's like communism like everyone gets the same it's just when you're debating trading lives yeah then you get into some weird ethical arguments of like well 
Yes, you're all, we're all trying to strive towards a natural good, as said by, you know, the philosophers John Stuart Mill and Jeremy Bentham. Mm. They're, they're the people who coined the utilitarian method. A way you call it, Dr. Lang for that? No, I looked it up all on my own. <laughs> but they're the people who really brought the utilitarian argument to the forefront. But the thing is, is like, in order to get to a universal good, you need to do a lot of bad shit, just like Ozymandias did. So it's, you know, it's kind of, and, and then I think what Dr. Manhattan and uh, Night Owl allude to is that humanity doesn't deserve to be, to get yeah. to a natural good. I mean, especially Rorschach, yeah. who, who is kind of a direct parody of Batman. Mm. Cause oh, like, that's so funny now that you say that, like his whole voice in the movie, it's like, Rorschach's journal. 1985. Yeah. Because, <laughs> yeah, because, yeah, this book is such, you know. Chaotic good, right? Yeah. Or like, yeah. Yeah, it doesn't, you know, what Alan Moore is saying is like, if Batman does exist, he's not going to be cool and suave like Bruce Wayne. He's going to be someone like Rorschach, who is gross and hypocritical and who is a sad, broken man with yeah. radical ideas. Yeah. That that's what Alan Moore is saying. That's what real caped crusaders are gonna be like. And yeah. Rorschach is for a lot of the book our main hero, our main guy. And Alan Moore's, you know, a lot of what the graphic novel is is just a subversion of the genre through and through. Some masked heroes are now like old and aging and overweight, which in the novel Rorschach calls Dan like overweight and aging and then in the movie he says the same thing but it's just like patrick wilson who's like right. 34 and we see naked for a very explicit yeah scene. <laughs> he's like he's like perfectly fit and yeah you know yeah not old well, at of, all I, you know what that makes me think of though is the old fat spider-man in the universe Oh, Spider-Verse? Spider yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. But, no, this is, like, this is so interesting because as you talk about the utilitarian mindset or worldview, I think, for me, it's almost a way of stepping back and saying, like, how do we not get to that point? Yeah. What can we do in the immediate moment to make sure that we don't get there? And that's kind of what I like about the story structure being an alternate universe where we don't take the path that we took. Like America lost Vietnam and we are finally accepting that that was violence that we didn't have to perpetuate. Yeah. Um, actually, and... side note, I think putting the comedian in Vietnam, brilliant. Oh, yeah. Right? Because we've talked about Colonel Kilgore and his role in Vietnam and how brilliant it was to reimagine heart of darkness in that way yeah um so i thought that was a really brilliant stroke but so what i'm saying is that if cooler heads hadn't prevailed not that our current history like reality is perfect right but if cooler heads had not prevailed had nixon not stepped down had all of those things not happened then we would be in a worse situation where we might have to start debating whether we should murder 3 million people to save the rest of humans, right? Yeah. So, like, well, and even, like, this is such a political book. You could even say that for, like, for take Trump, for example. Like, yeah. we let him get so far that January 6th, 2021 happened, mm -hmm. right? And so, like, it's just an interesting reminder that, like, 
sure, we should have started taking steps to save the environment in 1962, but we didn't. And now we're here. Yeah. And so what are the immediate actions that we can take now so that we don't end up in 2050 trying to figure out who do we murder now yeah. so that the rest of the world can continue living? Like, I think that's probably what I got out of this book, you know? Yeah. And the most haunting words of the book as Dr. Manhattan is leaving, I guess, the earthly plane and Ozymandias says, did I do the right thing? Is this the end? And then Dr. Manhattan says, nothing ends. Nothing ever ends. Right. So even even what Ozymandias did is only a band-aid. It's not a final solution. So even what he did do is not enough. It's not permanent. So yeah, it's definitely, I, I agree with you completely. It's a kind of a wake-up call to all viewers as to be like, you don't want the world to get to this point. Because even superheroes couldn't save you right. if they existed, which they don't. Or you would vilify, if you found out the real truth, then you would likely vilify Adrian when realistically, like he was the only one like quote unquote brave enough right. to pull the trigger or pull the, you know, the trolley lever to kill the five to save the one person. Yeah, we're referencing a philosophical problem called the trolley problem, which is there's a trolley on a track and five people are on the track, so they're gonna get run over. So you can either flip a switch and the trolley will go to another track, but it will kill a person on that track, or you can not do anything and then those five people will die. So the philosophical debate comes with, well, do you flip the switch knowing that you led to a death of one person or do you do nothing, five people will die, but it wasn't you who made a decision to kill those five people. Yeah. That's the trolley problem. And we talked about that in the Martian episode as well. And yeah, it's, it's a real interesting debate. Yeah, I guess... That's what just makes Adrian one of the best villains like ever yeah. in the superhero genre just because he is both right but evil yeah. at the same time. Because he was able to make that decision. Right. And and that's the thing that I also found interesting about the about Rorschach's journal and I'll be fully honest, I didn't understand this after I read the book, but it finally hit me when I watched the movie was that by so Rorschach is killed in the end because Dr. Manhattan is kind of on Adrian's side. He's like, well, that was really bad yes. <laughs> to murder a mil three million people, but I I actually get where you're coming yeah. from, and I'm just going to like take the fall because then like Earth can sort of like get moving in the right direction again. Yeah. And so Rorschach is like such an honest, I mean, quote unquote honest, like he's very hypocritical well, he's and problematic. He's a man... Of his own principles. Yeah. So his yeah. his one principle is that he never compromises, even in the face of yeah. Armageddon. Right. So, so meaning that, yeah. So he, he, like, Dr. Manhattan's like, well, Rorschach is going to go tell people about Adrian's plan. And so in order to, like, continue the Earth or humanity moving in the right direction, I have to kill him. Which honestly is even that decision is a little bit messed up because Rorschach is literally crazy. Everybody thinks he's crazy. Like one person pro arguably could not have brought about a complete mental shift mm -hmm. in society to, for people to like believe like, oh, this was a whole conspiracy. Like everyone would be like, shut the fuck up. Like that's ridiculous. But 
by him, even though he dies, he's already dropped off his journal to this little newspaper in Manhattan. Yeah, or called the New, New Yeah, the New Frontierman. Yeah. And so, like, the story might get out anyway. We don't know because the movie ends or and the book ends with the shot of Rorschach's journal sitting in this pile of basically they call it like the crank pile. Yeah. The crank files. And like so you don't know if that's what is going to be reported on and even if it's reported on are people going to believe it because they're yeah. probably going to frame it as this is some crazy person's conspiracy theory about why these three million people died so it's like even dr manhattan killing rorschach is a little bit isn't it it's not necessarily going to preserve the secret right. of adrian's plan so there's literally moral ambiguity in every single turn yeah which i which i also love because again that's like another way that alan moore and dave gibbons were subverting the like comic strip slash superhero pathos because basically with like superman like you don't question whether his actions are right or wrong like yeah it's superman right yep. and like his, his actions are always right like batman takes a little bit of a step back and says like he has some problematic methods. He has, he's sort of a problematic man, but at the same time, like he's always struggling within himself to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. But with this, it's just like chaos. Like, yeah, I like that a lot. <laughs> I do. Like, yeah. I, I think that's interesting. I think that's a lot more interesting than a superhero who can do no wrong. Yeah. And the one thing that the movie does much better than the graphic novel is to bring that pathos in the end so in the graphic novel no one witnesses rorschach's death the movie makes a decision to have night owl kind of his partner who's finally coming around to liking rorschach mm -hmm. uh witness it mm -hmm. and have that patrick wilson screams to the heavens no yeah. when dr manhattan does it it's much more powerful that mm -hmm. scene i thought where in the book it's a little honestly disrespectful because so no one witnesses Rorschach's death. They know that it happens, but Night Owl and Silk Spectre, they just can't comprehend what just happened. So they decide to have sex. Yeah. And it's just like, that's not really necessary at all. Yeah. Um, so I thought the book, uh, I thought the movie wisely made the decision to like have them react more emotionally and to have the music swell and have it yeah. be this big moment. Yeah. I thought it was a little, well, the whole thing is an uh, anti-climax, which I like, about how the Night Owl's greatest achievement is failing to stop Ozymandias. Yeah. So they get there, and one of my favorite lines is like, Ozymandias says, do I really think I would reveal my master plan right. uh, if there wasn't, you know, a short chance that it couldn't happen? Like, I, I set off... Or what do you say? You're like 35 minutes late, basically. Yeah. Like I already did it. Right. You're too late. Yes. But after that, in the graphic novel, just kind of like, well, that's it. And the movie makes the actors emote a little yeah. bit more in more natural ways. So I like that. Mm -hmm. But then we get to different like little changes. So my favorite part of Dr. Manhattan's character, and the show does this well, but how Dr. Manhattan experiences time all at once mm -hmm. the past present and future are all occurring at the same time for him so he can't change the future because to him the future is concurrent to the present and past 
everything is predetermined. It, it kind of, free will is an illusion right. that Dr. Manhattan realizes because of his abilities. But he can't see what Vite does because of tachyons, which Vite transmits back in time. So Dr. Manhattan can't see into this specific part of the future. That's why he's, Vite's able to do the plan. But in the graphic novel, it goes like back and forth in time as Dr. Manhattan is narrating like his journey. And that, that's super cool, I mm -hmm. thought. That's just so interesting. But in the movie, really only does that with one sequence where Dr. Manhattan is explaining his backstory. But that's like a 15-minute sequence, and it happens mm -hmm. two hours into the movie. And it's super cool, but it's just like Zach... This, it, it, we're too far in the movie for a whole different backstory. This is like an episode three type of thing where you just yeah. devote an episode to Dr. Manhattan and that's what the show wisely does. Mm -hmm. Dr. Manhattan has his whole episode yeah. and you get to see what he does. It's so cool to view. He like has a conversation in the future where he learns information and then talks um, the information to the past, just like our favorite movie, Arrival. Yeah. Where you gain, yeah, you gain a piece of information in the future, communicate it to your past self to create a right. timeline. Yeah. That's like one of the coolest yeah. things ever. Yeah. The movie bypasses most of that. Yeah. And that like has, gives Dr. Manhattan the ability to show Silk Spectre like how he views time, which that's not in the novel. Right. So like in the movie, Silk Spectre is like, I, show me like how you view time like how can you not care i know i think she's the one of the worst working actors out there she, she yeah is. you're talking about malin ackerman oh yeah gosh. i don't think I, she has no emotional range, she just i think a lot of the performances in snyder movies are just not good i i know that's not i can't think of anything eloquent to say mm -hmm. but yeah he's not a strong director mm -hmm. um that's for sure mm -hmm. But yeah, she's not great in this movie, but yeah, in the graphic novel, Dr. Manhattan does not have the ability to zap people's minds so they can like look back in the past and in the future. I mean, I guess it makes sense because Dr. Manhattan can do anything, like mm. literally anything. Mm. But yeah, that's kind of a, a change that they made to shore up the story and, and the runtime sure. that just is kind of lame in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, I just, I feel like I'm learning so much when you're talking because... <laughs> just a lot of this flew over my head, but he's just such a great character. And Billy Crudup, to his credit, does a great job. He's mm -hmm. one of the few performances. Him and Patrick Wilson. Remind me who he plays. He's Night Owl. Patrick oh, Wilson's yeah. Night Owl. Him and Patrick Wilson are, are pretty strong, but yeah, Silk Spectre. She's not good. Uh, Carly Gugino, oh. who plays Silk Spectre's mom. Yeah. Normally, a oh. great actress is. Like terrible in this. Terrible, and and her makeup. Yeah, is looks not great. Like a high school play. Yeah, like, you can see the lines where her, you know, like the old makeup is meets her like smile lines and nose. Yeah, it's really important. I now. guess I guess Jackie Earl Haley, who plays Warshak, is good. Matthew Good plays Ozymandias. I think that character kind of misses the mark. It's yeah. more due to his costume because. His costume looks like it has the fake abs and the nipples. It mm -hmm. kind of looks like the uh, George Clooney Batman costume mm -hmm. from Batman and Robin that everyone hated. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, he's okay. He's just definitely like a... He's almost more of a Dr. Manhattan where like he just doesn't care about anything. He's 
Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. I like Matthew Good as an actor. I don't think he yeah, was... Yeah, he's great in Stoker. When he reminded oh, yeah. me when he was in that, I was like, oh, of course, he's amazing in he, that. He's also but... great in a movie called The Lookout, a small indie with hmm. uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, but I don't think he's particularly strong here. I guess, oh, to be honest, I, I can't judge because I wasn't... There's just so much going on. I'm sorry, like, the, the movie, I just felt like there was so much going on. Uh-huh. But... The casting, just by looks, is incredible. Yeah. Maybe not Adrian. They could have found someone who looks a but, little bit more like the character. But also but... not the second Silk Spectre, because the whole point of her character was she was in that point in her life where she was starting to age and lose her mass sex appeal. Like, sure. that that was a whole, that was yeah. a, a character arc. Right. But in the movie, they cast way younger, yeah. Malin Ackerman, who might kind of look like her but is way too young for it like she was supposed to be active in the like 70s like a decade earlier and it's like well in this movie that would make her she's like at her peak yeah well but i I guess i was just saying like as far as looks go there it's almost one-to-one it's yeah especially with the guy they got to play rorschach like his face literally came oh, yeah. directly from the novel huge jackie earl haley fan yeah yeah oh what i wanted to say on dr manhattan was my favorite line of his was saying like there is no future there is no past time is simultaneous an intricately structured jewel that humans insist on viewing one edge at a time when the whole design is visible in every facet. I Mm. think that's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good line. So I kind of wanted to talk about how interesting I thought it was that the masked heroes are just humans. We talked about that a little bit. Yes. But I think it's a really interesting concept because you have to, it sort of puts you in the position of thinking about like, how a little bit nuts you would have to be to go out and sort of be like a vigilante crime fighter. Yeah. And how you basically are putting yourself into a God position because you're going to decide like what's right and wrong. And you know, when Night Owl and Lori have that conversation after they save all those people from the burning building about how that was like an easy thing to do. Like there was a very obvious right and wrong situation in that. Yeah. But then they start talking about like, well, if we were to break into the prison and get Rorschach out, like that's a little bit morally gray right there. And then when they're in the prison, like they beat up guards and they fight people who are in prison, but like don't really deserve to be beaten more than they already are. Like, so I thought that was like a really interesting thing to be thinking about. And that sort of started making me think about how the Greek gods in classical Greek literature are basically like superhumans, but with flaws. Yeah. And so I thought it was like really interesting that not only are the masked heroes ascribing themselves power by saying like, oh, well, like, like, let's say like Night Owl, like he's really good at flying ships. So he puts himself in the position of saying like, I have the coolest ship. So like, I'm going to be this superhero and I'm going to start like ascribing myself more and more power to make moral, moralistic judgments. Whereas like, that's not really the right thing to do just because you have like a couple really cool skills doesn't mean you necessarily have like the power of being a God. Yes. And I thought that was like an interesting way of viewing it. And like, then especially with Dr. Manhattan, because technically like he kind of is a God, like he can see time and all this stuff, but like, he's still a flawed person like he's still a flawed being 
So I thought it was really interesting to sort of bring those ideas back to how like the Greek gods would like favor people or have sex with other animals and then yeah. like, get themselves in trouble or, you know, stuff like that. I thought that was like just an interesting thing to notice. Well, that comes into the story literally when Ozymandias worships um, Alexander the Great of Macedonia yeah. and, and also uh, Ramses II. And he looks up to these leaders so much as gods and wants to be like them. So as the American public views superheroes, this superhero views other rulers as gods. And it's kind of that kind of that hierarchy about how even the superheroes have people to look up to. Yeah, no. And actually, now that you say that, it kind of makes me gather my thoughts a little bit better because obviously Adrian literally names himself after Ozymandias who has who the the poem by Shelley is Ozymandias mm-hmm. yeah. is literally about Ramses II and his hubris and how his hubris brought him down and that flaw is completely overlooked by Adrian and sure the story ends where Adrian has like succeeded in his plans but you also know like textbook the number one flaw of heroes is hubris right and, and as as soon as they overstep their legitimate power or their legitimate strength over other people, that's when the hubris starts to take over their mind and they start like falling apart. Exactly. Yeah. The novel ends with Ozymandias alone in a room being stranded by Dr. Manhattan. And he knows that he can't leave his um, Antarctica retreat. Like that's his life now. He saved humanity and he's doomed to be alone forever. Mm Mm-hmm. Which is something that oh, get, I I'm sorry to keep on teasing the show, but mm. it's it's such a great continuation of mm. the character. You're gonna love what happens. That's uh, so interesting. Yeah, it, it's just the most natural continuation I could think yeah. of, or I didn't think of it. Uh, sure. Damon Lindelof did. Yeah. So well, I'm really I'm really interested because I'm I'm so sorry I'm struggling to talk well, about this movie, but I was I was so tired. Well, here's the thing. This the is exemplary of, of a larger problem here. Yeah. Is that the movie is too long, mm-hmm. too dense, too juvenile because Zack Snyder just can't hold back sometimes. Mm-hmm. There is an infamous extended sex scene. Oh my god! Which we haven't okay? Touched on so this, yet. this will be the like one of the final things we say. But in in the graphic novel, it's three panels. So oh a, after Night Owl and Silk Spectre save the people from the burning building, Dan's uh, that's Night Owl. Dan's impetus goes away, and then they just do the nasty uh, in their little craft <laughs> and um, owl, owl pod. Yeah. And yeah, so it's like two panels and then Silk Spectre's butt hits a button and that's the flamethrower on the outside to like signal an orgasm. Like very tasteful, very funny. But Snyder decides to do a four minute and extended <laughs> pornographic it is like, sex scene. And I'm not, we're not being prudes here. Like go ahead and watch it. It is porn. It's, it's porn. Like there's literally like, there's a scene where the camera like zooms in on Dan's butt, like while he's like thrusting. And, and also, I mean, I don't mean to be insensitive here, but also like Malin Ackerman's whole 
front of her body and just like thrusting up and down yeah, and, and you like know watching her have an orgasm basically her face yeah like, it's 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 graphic um it's and but yeah. but what makes it so funny is that it's all in slow motion and you yeah. have hallelujah yeah Huh, like but the, not Jeff Buckley's version, like this weird, like half spoken, like yeah, it's it's so uncomfortable. And and that's just that whole moment kind of encapsulates Zack Snyder. Yeah. He creates these moments that he wants to be like cool and fun and edgy and sexy, and a lot of times they are that. But also a lot of times it's just filler. I it's just nonsense. Much. It's just weird and crass and unnecessary. So that's kind of Snyder as a whole. Um, I, I came down on him a little harsher than I thought I would, but I think this movie, since it's such a literal adaptation of the novel, could be amazing because, spoiler alert, the novel is a four out of four for me. Easy. Loved it. One of the best graphic novels ever made. It deserves its legacy. Sure. The movie is so close to being great, but it just isn't. It's just, it should have been a TV show. And for those reasons, I'm out. <laughs> for those reasons, I would say it's it's a two out of four star for me. It's like wasted potential. It, it could yeah. have been so great, but Snyder goes out of his way to essentially sabotage his own film with yeah. these weird slow-mo diatribes. and. Sure. Yeah, yeah, unnecessary scenes. Agree. So I'm getting tired thinking about watching it. <laughs> yeah, should have been should have been a TV show, which is why the actual TV show is so great. Yeah, so the book, the book, I just I hate to be this way, but like I really did not enjoy it. I the most I enjoyed the mo the thing I came out enjoying most was just watching the art uh-huh. behind. The storytelling uh -huh. so i'm sorry but one out of four i just i'm never gonna go back to this i had a lot of issues with the dialogue not thinking that it was very convincing or like natural i had a lot of issues with the underdeveloped female characters i like the concept but i think it just didn't work for me I see. Stings a I'm little sorry. bit, but I'll finish my hard seltzer to numb the pain. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then the book, again... The movie? I mean, and then the movie, again, I just... I was very put off by the graphic nature of it. I, I understand that it's a dark storyline, uh -huh. but that's just not my style. It's pretty yucky, and <laughs> it made me feel gross. <laughs> So, and I'm not going to watch it again, I'll be honest. So sure, one yeah. out of four for me. I just... Uh -huh. But I have really high hopes for the show taking the kernel of the graphic novel and turning it into flowers. Yeah, it's very relevant to today's times. Even more so to the Trump era, which we're now out of. But, um, Ish, yeah. I mean... Oh, yes. Yeah, <laughs> I guess. Still kind of struggling with right. the We're... shit storm that he left behind. Right, exactly. Um, but maybe the show will make me like the graphic novel a little bit more because it'll make, it'll I hope polish so. up the things that it that did shine out of it. But there was just so much darkness and so much that went over my head that I just really had a hard time connecting and yeah. getting the meaning out of it that I should have. Yeah, the show, Regina King is the main character of the show. Love so. her. Yeah, and they flesh out uh, Lori's character more. That's good news. Yeah. 
who's okay. yeah all right well yeah that's um i i'm i'm sure hoping the show will turn you around i'm sorry but no it, I, don't apologize do it not apologize not, yeah. i i do not apologize for my views on jane austen so you i'm telling you right now and you ended up loving the remake of emma yes so i'll probably like the show maybe who knows all right well thanks for listening tune in next week when we do part one of two of our coverage on uh, Watchmen, the show Yay. should be should be fun. Maybe we're gonna do like the first four episodes for episode one, and then like the last five for Who knows? episode Maybe two. Maybe it'll turn into a three-part episode. Who knows? But can't wait for that. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Instagram at film underscore is underscore lit underscore pod <laughs> for all updates and cool little behind-the-scenes photos. We love you. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you on the next one.